27. I'm really excited for this one. We're talking about environmental ethics, a little bit about our worldviews and how we view the environment, why we view the environment the way we do, and how that dictates our relationships with the environment itself. Last podcast episode, we talked a little bit about water quality, and um, we might address a little bit more of it today in this episode, but we're going to focus more on certain philosophies that gives us a perspective or a lens to view the environment. And they range from, you'll see it here, we're kind of talk about the difference between conservation versus preservation. And uh, that comes from a story to build a dam in Southern California in the Hetch Hetchy Valley. And that uh, pits two philosophers, I should say, against each other. One, um, Gifford Pinchot, who was the head of the U.S. Park Service at the time, who is in favor of conservation. And that means that you want to um, protect the environment in order to utilize it down the road. And then um, on the other side of that was John Muir, who was founder of Sierra Club. He didn't want the dam built because he was a preservationist. He believed that uh, and the environment should be protected from human activity. Then we're going to talk a little bit about anthropocentric versus biocentric ethics and views. And anthropocentric just means human, human-centered. When we say something's anthropocentric, we're just saying that we view it with the perspective that humans are king. We think of it in human terms. And biocentric ethics is thinking about life in terms of what things are living, not just humans. So we're also addressing non-human, non-living, non-human living things there. I want to talk a little bit about the lifeboat ethic um, by Garrett Hardin. So I don't want to get right into it right now, but it's a little bit of an interesting take on population control, how that has an environmental impact, and, you know, why it might not be the best way to look at it, but with all of these, there's always going to be um, something on the other hand. It's not absolute, um, it's philosophical, it's an opinion, it's a way to look at things, and none of it is uh, measurable or tested by science. So obviously all of this was at one point um, some guy's opinion who we wanted to share with people and other people agreed with it over time. Lastly, I want to talk about um, Ness's Eight Planks of Deep Ecology. And deep ecology, we'll get into it, but that's a little bit of a more intense way to view the environment. And um, the eight planks are a little bit interesting, so I wanted to go over those with you guys. But the first thing I want to talk about is this um, story of building a dam in the Hetch Hetchy Valley. So essentially, the debate between Gifford Pinchot and Jonathan Muir came from the proposal to build a dam and reservoir in the Hetch Hetchy Valley adjacent to California's Yosemite National Park. Demand for water in San Francisco led to the plan to flood the Hetch Hetchy, which would destroy thousands of acres of pristine forests. This debate has often been cast as a debate between economic interests and environmental interests. Now, last podcast, we kind of talked a little bit about the economics um, behind sustainability and uh, being sustainable. And essentially the issue in Flint was that uh, the city planner, the city planners, the government or whatever else were trying to cut, cut costs and they ended up eliminating a very vital chemical that needed to be put into the water supply in order to protect people from lead poisoning. And so um, I think that's just a great way to, to put it. environmental and economic. Now 
it's interesting because sustainability combines in the environment with the economy as well as the society. So we're looking at how both of those play and then their impacts on society as well. So I think it's really interesting to be able to use this as a putting these two things against each other when, when we think of sustainability, we have to make them work with each other. Anyway, so we had Gifford Pinchot, who's the head of the U.S. Forest Service, and uh, he essentially had a conservationist point of view. Now, that just means that he believed that nature was to provide prosperity to man through its usage and natural yield. That means that if you have land that's undeveloped and you're not using it for human purposes, it's unproductive, and what's the point of it? However, he did believe in protecting those resources and not excessively using them or wasting them, but only in the sense that later on down the road he would be able to access that for, again, human purposes. So in um, philosophy, we, we, we view this as a utilitarian view, which essentially it views nature as instrumentally valuable. And I touched on this last podcast, but instrumental value means that something has value because it gives you or takes you or can lead you to something else that you find more valuable or that is intrinsic in value, which um, we'll address here with Jonathan Muir's idea of preservation. But essentially, if something's instrumentally valuable, it's, it's like money. I use money to buy something that I need. In the same way, you know, I eat food for energy. So there's a lot of things that are inst instrumentally valuable and they lead to intrinsically valuable things and then they can be instrumentally and intrinsically valuable. However, Jonathan Muir, on the other side of things, who is a founder of the Sierra Club, um, <clears throat> wasn't in favor of building the dam, despite the need for the water, because he felt that the valley should be preserved and protected from human activity. As a preservationist, he felt that he needed to protect the environment for human activity because it would degrade or spoil it further, and it wouldn't just be degrading and spoiling it further for the usage of building homes or development later on, it would be degrading and spoiling it just for future generations because he felt it was a more intrinsically valuable thing to have nature. That's talking about the transcendental, the sublime, the religious, the spiritual aspect aspects of being out in nature and enjoying the silence or the animals or the wildlife or the biodiversity or the ecosystem that you're in. So... Um, instrumentally versus intrinsically. Intrinsically, um, it doesn't get you to anything. It's the end of the means. It's important because it is important, and uh, it's important because it just exists. Now, between these two guys, uh, both of them believe in preserving the environment. It's not that one is worse, one is bad, and one is good. It's just that one thinks that, well, we have, humans have the unique ability to manipulate and control our environment, so why not use it to our prosperity, and then that is the ultimate goal, rather than to preserve the environment because the environment should, deserves to be preserved. So that's kind of where we talk about biocentric ethics and anthropocentric ethics. So when we're thinking that the environment should be saved for human purposes, we're thinking of it anthropocentrically, through human lens, through a human lens. We're thinking of how the environment can benefit humans and keep humans safe, as opposed to um, thinking in a biocentric lens or thinking about biocentric ethics, um, who the uh, originator of this idea was Albert Schweitzer. And essentially, in biocentric ethics, the defining feature of morality is life. Life is what matters. So anything that is alive, 
deserve to be deserves to be protected and respected. And so that's more um, preservationist, right? Nature having having intrinsic value. And so essentially from this, he says that all things that are alive are just trying to survive and live the best life it can. And that's every single living thing on the planet. Anything that has life is trying to do those two things. And life is good in and of itself. And because of this, you know, when doing good is when we promote life and help it and doing evil is when we diminish it or prevent it from thriving. So... There's a little bit of a conflict here because if they need to build the dam in the Hetch Hetchy Valley because the water is needed for humans versus building the dam and millions of trees are going to be destroyed. Like where, I mean, of course we're promoting life for the humans, but we're also diminishing life in the process. So that's why when it comes to philosophy, you have to think about it with different kind of realms of thought and kind of take it with a grain of salt and kind of look through it with your own personality and your own kind of spin on things. But furthermore, in um, Albert Schweitzer's Biocentric Ethics, essentially uh, you want to have bioempathy, that everything is in the same situation as humans and we have a kinship with them because we're part of a greater ecosystem and a greater, greater community. Now, way on the other end of the spectrum from uh, Biocentric Ethics is going to be Lifeboat, lifeboat Ethics which was originated by Garrett Hardin, and he is definitely not as humanitarian or holistic in his approaches. He uses this metaphor um, that essentially each nation, um, the earth or different groups of people, is a lifeboat. And each lifeboat has a carrying capacity, meaning when you hit a limit, that is the exact number of people you could have in your boat. If you had any more, it would be disastrous and it would sink. And there's also a thing called a safety safety standard. A thing called a safety standard where you want to have some buffer. You don't want to be at your carrying capacity at all times because you're always within risk of exceeding your carrying capacity. Now, if each nation is a lifeboat and each nation is, say, wealthy or poor, that means that some lifeboats are going to be comfortable, not overcrowded, and have quite a ways to go before they reach their carrying capacity, or at the very least, have their safety standard buffer area. While on the other hand, there are a lot of boats that are overcrowded, people are falling off, people are in the water, and essentially the people who are in the water, if they stay there too long, they drown, that's essentially, that you know, that's the life cycle. But people who are in the water are trying to move to the lifeboats because the lifeboats will benefit them, especially if the richer and the wealthier lifeboats in the better nations and areas have a higher carrying capacity and more room for them. Now, with this metaphor, you have three ways of going about this. If you have a lifeboat with 50 people on it and a carrying capacity of 60, you are essentially right there at your safety standard. You can take on 10 more people. But, like I said, if you get too high, you're still in risk of exceeding your carrying capacity. So your first option is that you only let on 10. And something happens, and you have to let on someone else, or you run out of something and the carrying capacity unexpectedly drops, then everyone who's on that boat suffers and possibly ends up drowning. Now, if 
Also in the scenario, how do you choose, if there's 100 people in the water around you, how do you choose which ones you're going to let on? How do you choose the 10 you're going to allow in? And that's kind of where we look at this through immigration policy, because it's kind of as if saying, well, we could let some people in, but we can't let everyone in. So how are you supposed to decide who to let in? Who's worthy of it? Who has a better story? So if we choose then that we aren't going to let or we don't know how to pick 10 people to let on, and we let all 100 people in the water on, obviously what's going to happen is that everyone, even the 50 people who are on the boat and safe, is going to drown. So it leads us to our harshest option, which is we don't let anyone on. We assure that the 50 people who are on the 60-person capacity boat can survive, and you give them enough of a buffer zone so they can operate within that, and they're never really too close to a risk of exceeding their carrying capacity. Now, it seems really bleak. It seems like a really bleak way to look at things. And there's a lot of issues with it. It's definitely been criticized by other philosophers. And the main reason is that it's too simplistic. We don't think of the world in terms of boats and people in boats and people in water. You know, there's a lot of complexities and various reasons and, you know, natural variability. I talk about that in terms of sustainability. We have no idea what's going to hit us in terms of natural disasters, uh, earthly effects, um, novel inventions, you know. So... Again, it's too simplistic, but it also assumes that none of the lifeboats interact with each other and that each lifeboat has a specific and measurable carrying capacity, which is impossible. Carrying capacity is an approximation. It's, oh, I bet we could have this many people before we sink, but I'm not entirely sure until we test it. And so it's just kind of leveled out as an average. It also assumes that goods are going to be fixed. So there's only one way to get goods, and goods for the 50 people will always be supplied, and that there'll never be a problem there. But obviously, we can't assure that there'll never be a food shortage, or, you know, like we have problems with water distribution. We can't assure that that won't happen. And on top of this, you know, the rich can refuse to help the poor. Some nations can refuse to let immigration immigrants in. Um, some places can choose not to contribute to world food banks to help world hunger and just not help at all. But not helping doesn't make the problem go away. Um, we're not going to solve population or hunger or water distribution issues through inaction, essentially. So the last thing I want to go over is Ness's Eight Planks in Deep Ecology. And deep ecology is this idea that it, it's like biocentric ethics, like, but on crack. It's a lot more intense and deeper than thinking of terms in a shallow ecology method, which is thinking about the utilization to human usage, how humans view the world. And when we go back to conservation versus preservation, yeah, conservation is how 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 much utility will we get out of this nature? But also thinking about how much humans just enjoy nature and how much, how intrinsically valuable it is to humans is also a shallow kind of way of looking at it because it's, again, how do humans view the world, not um, humans are equal to all other members of the living and 
humans have no superiority. And that's a big part of deep ecology, is not viewing humans as superior to animals, and not viewing humans to superior, as superior to other humans. It's viewing humans as a, a level of a tier, um, one part of a whole, that isn't real without the whole, without the community. So the first plank in Ness's eight planks is that the well-being and flourishing of human and non-human life on Earth have value in themselves. And these values are independent of their usefulness for human purposes. So again, I'm talking about this, that things exist, and because they exist, they have purpose. They don't need to help you or provide usefulness for you as human or for anyone else to have purpose or have intrinsic or inherent value. Next, richness and diversity of life form contributes to the realization of these values and our values in themselves. So the diversity that we have and the richness and the fact that things are different is what makes these things special. Next, humans have no right to reduce this richness and diversity except to satisfy vital needs. Now that's important because we have to interaction, interact with nature in order to eat, in order to have security. We have to live within it and compromise. And so um, you can't reduce this without the need to satisfy vital needs. And now in terms of extracting and fossil fuels and um, and that industry where <clears throat> some of ex this extraction isn't to address vital needs. If we really only did this to address vital needs, we wouldn't have these emissions and these issues because our vital needs would cover the important aspects and we wouldn't have the excess that's actually causing the problems. So next, the flourishing of human life and cultures is compatible with the substantially smaller human population. And the flourishing of non-human life requires a smaller human population. So essentially, you know, we see it, uh, and going forward in the future it'll be a problem. The population is enormous. It's increased tenfold in just the last hundred years. We have almost 8 billion people on the earth, and even in 1920, early 1900s, there's only about a, a couple billion. So uh, when you really think about it, considering through the ages, we've really had an exponential growth when it comes to human population. And so the non-human life world needs to have a smaller human, human population in order, in order to exist and to flourish. And now it might be simple to say, okay, well, then that's when Harden comes in effect and we're just going to leave people in the oceans to drown. But essentially... Ignoring that problem isn't going to make population go down. Essentially, addressing that comes from a lot of different areas, but it comes from changing worldviews, it comes from changing policies, but not um, dictatorial policies like the one-child policy in China, but it also comes from, you know, kind of rethinking the paradigms that control our society. <clears throat> so next, that brings us to present human interactive with interactions with the non-human world is excessive, and the situation is rapidly worsening. So that's kind of like the same with population, and this is just saying that we have been degrading too many areas of the world, we're not leaving too much of it um, left undiscovered, and we're really losing out on our natural resources, and it can be a crisis in the future. Next, um, I already said it, but policies must be changed. We have to change the way that we view our environment and interact and cooperate and make policies regarding our environment in order for any of this to change. Um, the next is that the ideological change will be mainly that of appreciating life quality, meaning dwelling in situations with inherent value, 
rather than adhering to an increasingly high standard of living, meaning just begin to enjoy your life for the special things that make it special. Don't think about acquiring more money, spending more money, increasingly living in more expensive homes, driving more expensive cars, having more and more and more, because that just creates a consumer society and it separates you from being a citizen as a part of community. And it, it makes you a consumer. It makes you a buyer. It makes you want more and more and more. And that essentially has to be an ideolo ideology, ideological change um, for a lot of people. And the last one is that those who ascribe to the following points have the obligation directly or indirectly to try to implement the necessary changes. Meaning if you're going to be serious about it, if you're going to say that that's what you believe and that's how you think should be handled, how you think things should be handled, that um, you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to uh, buckle down and you have to in try to influence those changes in your life around you. And I'd like to think that my podcast helps does helps do that or can in the future. Um, and for the time being, I mean, we're all just trying our best, right? We're all just trying to, trying to live in harmony with everyone else. Or maybe if you're someone like Garrett Harden, you're trying to keep people out of your boat. And either way, we're all living and we all have to share the earth with each other. And so these are just a few ways that we think about how we share the earth with each other and how we think about we share the earth with, uh, things that aren't human, but are alive anyway. So that'll about do us for podcast seven this week, you guys. Um, I had really a lot of fun going over these philosophical ideologies for you guys, and uh, we'll see you next week.